Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and it's been a while since I released a new episode. I do have new episodes recorded and coming soon. But before releasing those, I've decided that in honor of Black History Month, I'm going to go ahead and go back in the archives and re-release a series I did last February on Black motherhood. In this four-part series, a group of Black women who I'm honored to call friends sit down with me and share many aspects of Black motherhood, from the historical to current day to their own experiences as Black mothers. So this month, as we honor Black history and those who built this country while carrying unimaginable pain and trauma, I do hope you'll take more than a minute to listen and learn from their stories and voices. And not just this one month of the year, but every single month of the year. Listen in on these important conversations. Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and today I'm honored to share with you the fourth and final part of the four-part series we've done this month to pay tribute to Black motherhood. In this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by five of the six women who have taken part in this series. Today at the table, we're joined by Marcy Alvis Walker, Jay Sears Beerfield, Patricia A. Taylor, Dr. Quintrilla Ard, and Naya Abernathy. The theme for this week's episode is In Our Mother's Garden. And I have to say, this might be my favorite episode of the series. There's just so much joy, vulnerability, and also a lot of grief shared in this conversation. It's truly a sacred space these women are allowing us into. So listen in as they talk about the dignity they each carry and what it means to be a multi-layered black woman in a world that wants to flatten them. They also share personal stories from their own mothering journeys and talk about some of the hardest chapters where their own lives have been jeopardized. Finally, they share about the legacy their ancestors have left for them and the soil they tend to daily to leave a bounty of dignity for the children that come after them get started and I'm not going to say welcome today because last time that was nobody nobody answered so I'm just I was ready I was so ready for you to say welcome this time (laughs) okay well then we can I'll just say okay everybody at the same time say like yay you're excited to be here (laughs) all right ladies welcome to this final episode in the series of the Her Story Speaks podcast yay (laughs) we're so excited yes Super excited. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm thrilled to just have almost all of you here today. Letty's not here, but we, uh, she, she worked really hard for the first two episodes. So I'm just so thrilled to have, goodness, the five of you here today. So let's do a quick intro so listeners know who is sitting at the table and we'll be talking today for this final episode. So Patty, you want to start us off? Just give us a quick intro. Sure. I'm back. You all should know me by now. Okay. Um, (laughs) No, but uh, this is Patty Taylor, Patricia Taylor, and I am just so happy to be here for the second conversation of this particular series. I currently live outside of Atlanta and I'm from California originally. I'm the director of programs for Be the Bridge. I'm an anti-racism educator. I've done some uh, contracted amazing work with Sesame Street and I just think that Black women are amazing. So there you have it. That was quick. That's in a really small nutshell because you are amazing. So yes. Okay. Dr. Quantrilla. Hey, hey, everyone. My name is Dr. Quantrilla Ard. I also live outside the Atlanta area. So, Patty girl, we're going to have to get up. 
Um, I'm excited to be here again, and I am your resident Black maternal and infant mortality and health uh, guru, and I um, protect all things Black mamas and Black babies. I love to educate and empower women so that they are not afraid of their birthing experience, but that they enjoy it as they should. I also am a literary agent, and I help people steward and shepherd their stories and so I am here for all the goodness, and I am excited about our conversation today. Hi, I'm Marcy. Um, I was Walker. I'm a writer and digital content creator. I guess that's what they call them, Instagram people. And I am just thrilled to have this group of women. Woke up early this morning, singing a little, just super excited to have this conversation. Okay. Yes. And I, I, I think we all have big smiles on our face. I'm just... Can't believe I get to learn from you all again. Okay, Naya, you're you're next in the lineup here. Hello, my name is Naya Abernathy. I am the founder and educator over at The Dignity Effect, where I do social emotional education for adults, and I seek to help people cultivate relational well-being. Um, I'm also just outside of the Atlanta area, just east, so I feel like there needs to be an in-person hangout soon. Some of you want to call, <laughs> uh, and I'm excited to. Uh, talk with y'all today and share some space. All right. Thank you, Naya. And the Shay, the, the Shay, the Shay show, Shay from the Shay show. Um, first of all, I'm a little jealous of all of these outside Atlanta folks who will be able to see each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Shay, Shay Sears Bearfield. I am the host and creator of the Shay show. It's a show that we create meaningful and um, conversations with people around the world because we believe that when you talk about things that matter to you, you'll invariably speak about things that matter to the world. And it's our goal to impact the world and push the needle towards love. And we're just thrilled that you made the time to be able to join us today again, Shay. So thank you. Okay, we will go ahead and dive in. The topic for today is in our mother's gardens. And Marcy, you have on the list, the first thing to talk about is the history of the welfare queen. Do you want to go there or are you wanting to go another direction? You know, I would like to open it up with Naya. I want Naya to speak about the work that she's doing with dignity, because I think that ties in powerfully to the narrative of Black motherhood. And I know Naya's just like, oh, you do? (laughs) But I think... Let's start with dignity and maybe Naya can give us her definition of dignity because we are first, let's talk about what dignity is. And then we can talk about how it's, how it's been attacked and how it's, how, how that, how we've resisted those attacks throughout history. All right. So again, the name of my company is the dignity effect and the working definition I use for dignity is the God given intrinsic worth and value. Each being carries that cannot be taken away. Um, I always tell people that you always have had it. It doesn't matter if it has been denied, if you've never been told you have it, if somebody has tried to cover it up, um, it doesn't change that it's there. And my goal is to help um, people not just see their own dignity, but to make it the primary thing about them. The primary thing about each individual is that they hold intrinsic worth and value that they have intrinsic enoughness and in their unique particularities that are given to them on purpose, they reflect the divine and we need them to be their full selves. And that's the best way that someone can honor their own dignity. And by doing that, we 
also see the dignity in others and allow others to live into their dignity too. <laughs> Nobody can see this, but everybody on the screen is like clapping. And, and I so say glory. Excited. Yes, yes, hey, you can. It's a hallelujah, amen, and all the things, <laughs> all the praise hands, all the praise <laughs> hand emojis going on in the chat right now. <laughs> yes. And so when I think when we're talking about the reality of, um, of Black motherhood, and I know we're going to dive into the messages that we have gotten and the way things have been set up um, on a large scale level. I do want to um, also ground us not in that general, not just in that general understanding of dignity, but in the specifics of the dignity of what it means to exist within a framework or an experience of Black motherhood, whether you are an actual mother or whether you find yourself mothering somebody else that may not be your actual birth child. And I think very specifically about our ancestors who in the midst of some of of the most dehumanizing uh, situations were able to steal away, right? Letty talked a little bit, I think, about like hush harbors and how we would go out and find a place where we could reconnect with who we are, where we could have a full expression of ourselves. I mean, often that is led by Black women. The singing, the dancing, you'll see a lot of the, those expressions still exist in Black churches today as well. And in my experience in the Black church, there's a very specific place for mothers, quote unquote, of the church, mothers so-and-so that's the title and there is this action of mothering each all of the kids that come through the adults as people are going through different seasons of lives there are these women within the black church institution that people say well did you did you talk to mother so-and-so about this and so that has existed in our history and in our communities for a long time this kind of undercurrent of what it means to to show up and mother those who are right in front of you. And it does make me think about this invitation to tend to the garden that the, the part of the garden that is yours to tend to. Um, and it does include, of course, your own children and others. And I also think about the dignity of, of those in my lineage. Um, I think about, and I was thinking particularly about this uh, garden motif, because I know in my family, there are stories of women tending to gardens and passing that on and feeding their families and, and making provision and knowing that gardening is not just about making provision, right? We weren't our dignity isn't honored when we're only working. There is also joy. There is also pleasure. There is also rest. There is also creativity. There is also play. And all of those things are wrapped up in our stories in the midst of some of the most, again, dehumanizing, undignifying situations that we have been put into. And so there's something, and I'm not going to say resilience because of that's a very loaded term right now. But there's something that we insisted on holding on to, insisted, and that even when we had, were forced into this, this perverted relationship with the land, we were able to go back and say, no, I know that this land is good and that I can have relationship with it that produces beauty and goodness and it doesn't produce harm. And what that has taught us and what we're able to come to the table with and how we're able to honor our own, own dignity and our own healing and the healing of our lineage and the healing of those going um, before us. So I, I wanted to speak on that and make sure we laid that foundation before we went into um, some of the other things. You know, um, I'm gonna let Quintrilla speak, but I, I just wrote in the messages, well, damn, yes, you know, <laughs> because I've never heard it 
put quite like that. And I just want to thank you for the gift of that. Because I thought about the metaphor of the soil, but the way that you brought it full circle was just particularly beautiful. And before we get started, something I, I want to also be mindful of is that this isn't about if your mother was a good mom. My mother was very flawed, very flawed childhood, very, very um, dark childhood. There's a lot of violence in that childhood, but there are reasons for that. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a dignity that was bestowed upon her. Now, for various reasons, a lot of that dignity was stripped away, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't a, there wasn't initially an inherent decision to even birth me. So I think that if you're listening to this and you're someone who doesn't have that mother relationship, mothering isn't just in the form of female bodies. There's it's a spirit thing. So it may not necessarily come from your mom. It might come from girlfriends. It might come from it can even come from a man, honestly who is nurturing and doing that work and that, that metaphor of gardening and tilling soil and, and, and growing something good. So if it's difficult for you to hear this and, th and you're thinking, yeah, but that wasn't my experience, I want you to know, me too. That wasn't the whole of my experience. But there were other planters, other mothers, other hair braiders, you know, who were weaving in the soil and, and, and nurturing me, oiling my scalp so to speak, you know? Listen, all I wanted to say was that I, every time I come in this space, I have a visceral, emotional reaction. There's something holy and sacred about the words that are being shared, about the experiences that we are connecting with together and speaking that out into existence for other people to hear and and to to listen. That's all I wanted to say. I just didn't know I needed to have a box of Kleenex next to me again, but that's okay. And it's good and it's healing and it's cathartic. So let's keep talking. Well, I wanted to just piggyback on what Naya was saying. No, I don't want to piggyback on it. I just want to say, I guess, Dr. Quintrilla, the same thing that you are saying. This is um, when she was speaking, I was seeing pictures and images and I was seeing, it's like, I was just seeing like, um, like old black women, young black women. Um, I was seeing images of women whose dignity was denied, overlooked, not acknowledged, refuted, and who yet knew that they were somehow something magical and holy. And that is a lineage that I feel most honored of being amongst, to be able to look in the rubble and the sand and know that you are glorious. So when I feel that I'm impinged upon in my humanity and my womanness and my worth and my inherent dignity, Naya, I... I go back to these women that you called up for me in images and I see them out in fields, on islands, in other nations. I see them there yet standing in their fullness 
of the beauty of who they are. And that is a magnificent lineage to come from. So when I do enter rooms and when I do enter spaces, I think of that thing. You, you, you call up the, I, I may come as one, but I stand as 10,000. And that's what I hear when you are describing that inherent dignity that is there regardless of whether or not it's been acknowledged. It is there because I come as one, but I know I stand as 10,000. You know, when um, I first logged on and we all have busy schedules, not quite sure who's all going to be on each of these calls, but I was taken aback in seeing, truly seeing all of these beautiful, intelligent, fierce, stunning, brilliant women. I, I hope that, you know, your listeners are following us on Instagram or connecting with us, whatever, but to see us together and the picture that I'm looking at, I thought, look at us. Like we are all so unique. Not one of us has the same uh, amount of melanin in our skin. Not one of us has the same hairstyle. Not one of us has, you know, duplicate any, like we're all so brilliantly unique. And I just thought, how can someone see this and not see our dignity? Like, how can someone look at, look at this, what I'm looking at and not be like, damn, like, look at them. <laughs> but just as Shay said, it's not even about that. Like the, the harrowing part is unfortunately we have been reduced because of <clears throat> the keepers of society and what they deem as dignified and not, but we know better. We know who we are. We know what we see and who we see when we look in the mirror and we know who came before us. And we know the legacies that we're leaving when we are no longer here, who will come after us. And that's why we will continue to get up and rise each day and to put out the best of whatever we have each day and rest when we need to and claim that joy and cry and be fully human. I continue to get so bothered by this idea that as Black women, we don't get to exist as full humans. We can only exist as what whiteness can take from us. And then once that labor is done, then the rest of us ceases to exist. That even happens, you know, right now in this moment with, you know, Marcy understands this and Shay and I, all of us, I'm sure to a certain extent as digital content creators, if you're not educating me, if you're not telling me something that I can take from you, then I don't, I don't want to see a picture of just you smiling. How is that serving me? I don't want to see a picture of you just celebrating and being happy and looking cute. Like, wh why would I want to see that? What can you do for me? I don't want your joy. I don't want to hear about how you how you want to plant seeds for, for your family. I don't want to hear about how you are having ups and downs in your own mothering. I just want you to, to fill me up and feed me. And we are so much more than that. And really, I just feel like looking at these squares, <laughs> like seeing these faces, looking into the eyes of each of these women is like a picture of the landscape that is Black womanhood and its various forms and all its glory. I think one of the biggest problems that carries over and that informs so much of what we continue to experience as um, denial of our dignity is the flattening of our personhood as Black women, making us two-dimensional. Oh, you're just fill in the blank. I am not just anything. I am full of complexities and nuance and evolution. I am made of stardust. I am made of the earth. 
I am, I carry a Mago day. How can I be flat? How am I not multidimensional? How am I, how am I not the depths of oceans, the expansiveness of galaxies, and yet you want to make me single noted and flat? I'm not a paper person. I'm an entire human with more emotions than they can put on the feeling wheel. If you've never seen the feeling wheel, there's like, I don't know, 47 emotions on there, but there's way more than that. I am more, I am more beautiful than just what I look like on the outside. I carry more value than what I can produce, what I accomplish, what quote unquote successes I do or don't have. I think one of the greatest success that black women and black mothers can achieve is honoring the fullness of who they are because we pass that on to those that we mother. And if we can say, they're gonna try and flatten you, boo. They gonna try. But the legacy I'm giving you is something that is multidimensional and that is who you are. And you are not just allowed, but you carry worthiness to fully be that multidimensional being and to change, to change your mind, to learn and grow and evolve. When we leave that, then it might, my hope, I'm speaking of some of the things that I've struggled with as a black mom. It, I hope it's not that hard for my children to rest. I hope it's not that, that it's not the struggle that I have to, do all this really hard internal work to be like, no, it's okay if you have a little joy. Like, no. Um, I think that my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother are blessed when they see me living in the freedom of joy, being able to fully use my voice, being able to say no and have a boundary that is not allowed to be crossed, whatever it is, um, to be able to make choices for my family that benefit my family, the agency that they desired and said, I'm gonna carve my agency out in this garden right over here. If I can't have it over here in the public space, I'm gonna have it over here in this private space. I believe that the blessing um, for them, for me, and for those who I am mothering is to, is to be fully who I am and allow others to be fully who they are, who they were created to be. You know, you said so much, Naya and, and Patty and Shay and, and Quantrilla, You've, you guys have said so much that I think is so important when we talk about, and I, and I hesitate to even, to even go into the ways that our dignity has been stripped, but I feel that it's important for listeners to understand it because it's not how you think. It's not in a very overt way. It's a very, um, what my mother used to say, cause she would, she would call things sinister. It's a very sinister way. It's very sly. It's not, it's not that you know, people are just punching black women in the face, although that does happen. It's it's this um it's a million little slights 
that equal black motherhood is not trustworthy. Black motherhood is not upstanding. It's not holy. It's not, it shouldn't be protected. It shouldn't be listened to. It shouldn't be heard. And it starts with how we govern. And because when you take, when you use punitive discipline to discipline rather than to correct behavior, what you do is you strip people of their dignity. And because we have done that it's it's brian stevenson says it's this really wise thing that no one's the worst thing that they've ever done but what we do because we're so we we are so punitive even in the way that we raise our children not 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 us in this room but the way we've been taught to raise our children for a very long time for nearly a, more than a decade a few decades the one of the leading voices for child rearing for whiteness was James Dobson. And James Dobson claimed the fame was punitive punishment that you that you you spank your child. And so when that is applied to whiteness, that is one thing. Right? You do what you want to do. But when that is applied to blackness, it's to protect whiteness. So our history is that we had to beat our children to make whiteness feel comfortable. So we had to literally take our child that may have walked on the sidewalk in front of a white woman, right? And so we couldn't just explain to our child, oh, we don't do that, right? No, the expectation was you better handle your child, beat literally the living shit out of them so that some white man doesn't decide to lynch him in the middle of the night because he crossed his his wife so you have to perform this punitive there's a famous um not famous it's not well known but there is a a case where a black mother had to beat her child in the town square in front of all these white viewers that was what the judge's ruling was that that was the sentence that she either had to do it or they were gonna do it and so we have this history of that in our, so when we read a book about child rearing from a white man who has no connection to that, and he tells us that it's our duty, it's our, it's our godly duty to beat our children, to hit our children, and then, you know, that, that's being a good parent. And then we send our babies out into this world that is going to beat them in one way or another, right? Try to destroy their dignity, destroy their worth. We really have to, it, it becomes a different conversation, but they don't want to have that conversation. So they'll do all kinds of things to flatten our beings, our actual bodies, they, to make us paper thin, as you were saying, Naya. And they'll even say that the, the earth itself is flat <laughs> to support the idea that there's no dimensions, there's no nuance, there's none of this, right? So with the story of the welfare queen, we've heard of this um, story, most of us have heard of it. When Ronald Reagan ran on his ticket, he won, one of the reasons he won is he stirred up white fear about black mothers robbing the system of welfare. Okay, I'm gonna tell you something. You can't rob the system all that well 
you might get an extra block of government cheese maybe at the most, you know? You're not gonna get all that much trying to rob the system. It's not like that. Her story was a very rare case and a very interesting one that brings a lot of dynamics into our history. Um, first of all, her name was Linda Taylor. I think it's important that we say her real name. Her name was Linda Taylor. And she was a woman who was born into poverty um, and born into isolation because she was she was um, of mixed race. She had a she had a white mom and a black dad at a time when that was not allowed. And so she couldn't go to the all white school and the black school didn't really accept her for various reasons. And so she had a lot of from the very beginning, her whole childhood, there was a identity crisis. Of course there would be, right? So it's not surprising that when she found a way to find what she thought was dignity, but really was just a bunch of stuff, um, she tried to clothe herself in dignity by having cars, by having money. And it, it was a whole different, this wasn't someone who was well, right? And it's something that was created out of our history. The one thing that you want to be when you're a kid who's beat upon day after day after day, you want to be somebody, right? And so when, when a kid is selling whatever they got to sell, uh, you know, to whomever they got to sell it to so they can have the latest kicks so they can help their mama with the groceries. It's not out of not having dignity. It's because they want dignity. And there's just been too much of our history, too much legislation to literally cut off any path towards that. It's like you're born into this caste and there is no movement and people are just like, well, you just got to read, read 30 minutes a night to your child and they'll go to college. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, that's not possible. For some people, that's not even possible. What if your parent can't even read? What if you're the one reading to your parent? What if your parent, this is their, this isn't even their first language. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that we don't put into consideration when we, when we make these demands on parents and we say, well, if something's wrong with the kid, then it must be the parents. And because black children are arrested far more than any other um, juveniles out there, then there must be something wrong with black mothers. And it's like, no, no, it's that the system is set against blackness. And it's been in our history and it remains in our history. And they're fervently trying to figure out ways to keep it in legislation with voting laws, with CRT. They do not want us to be unburdened from this because if we unburden people and we give people back their dignity and we let people have dignity, and we let whiteness have dignity outside of being white, well, then the whole caste structure falls down. And the ones at the top don't want you to have that. They do not want you to have that. They want your children to feel satisfied enough in just being not black, not an immigrant not gay, not transgender. That's what they want. And they will tell you in sly ways. They will say it's for your own good, it's for your own protection, 
But what they're saying is that there is no multifaceted God when they're saying that. They're they're saying, we're not going to worship a multifaceted God. We're going to build this Tower of Babel and we're going to worship that. And we really have to be mindful when we say things like when white parents say, I'm worried about my child's feeling guilty about slavery. I'm like, you should really be worried about your child not feeling guilty about slavery. Because if your child doesn't feel guilty about injustice, they will learn to eat at the table of injustice and it will taste good and they will go back for seconds. So think about that when you say that. Why would you not want your child to feel guilty about an evil? Why? Why would you not want your child to feel guilty about that? I feel guilty about a great many things that I didn't have nothing to do with. I don't feel shame. I feel guilt. And that guilt keeps me working and mindful and, and going around spreading light and dignity for other people. That's what guilt does. Shame keeps you saying, there's nothing to see here and I don't want you to mess with me. And that's what you're feeling. So you, what you're calling guilt is really you're ashamed and you need to deal with your shame. Yeah, I um, just this week, and you ladies may have heard of this this story, but there is a, a school that's rightfully so coming under fire because their counselor, I believe in Indiana, uh, sent home uh, letters for white parents to opt out of Black History Month or uh, opt out of their children receiving you know, any education around Black History Month. And one thing that, uh, first of all, thank you, Marcy, for everything that you just shared. And, and I'm really um, just sitting with so much of that. But one thing that is, is um, a reoccurring theme and born out of this is that the power that white mothers hold, if a white mom is uncomfortable, if a singular white mom is uncomfortable, then we need to burn it all to the ground because she's not happy. If a singular black mom has raised five kids who are all doctors and are changing the world in their city, uh, she got lucky. That's not we're, let, let, get, go back to the welfare queen. Let's look at her. And, and that's, that's what we're going to build, build everything based upon. And it's so, it's insidious. Someone shared that in our, in our chat earlier. It's so insidious because the way that the double standard is there is not always this overt thing. You know, Marcy, it's so interesting because I've been, I've been um, helping my parents move and doing some traveling recently. And I had chills as I, as I was listening to you talk about the history and the story and, and bringing it forth about spanking and beating your children. And I was, I was in the airport recently and there, you know, was a mom who had little kids traveling. I've been that mom. I always have compassion. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh, it's tough. And, and I hadn't, you know, really like paid attention. I was just sitting, waiting to, to board. And this was, this was a white mother. And I could, I could hear her voice, you know, getting agitated. She was getting frustrated and was like, I said, no. And I was just like, Ooh. I know that, I know that voice, but then she said, get over here now or I will spank you. And she said it, you know, I heard her. Well, I'm sure tons of people heard her. And a part of me just cringed on the inside for multitude of reasons. But in that moment, I sat there and thought if I was in her shoes and if I had made that statement, 
all these people sitting around me, just minding their business, going about their day, waiting for their flight, you know, who were just like, tra-la-la. like, what would that response have been? If that I had violent, said, that right, violent. That I'm violent or, 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 oh, I'm feeding right back into that, that stereotype. Ooh, you know, all those black women do is just beat their kids and, Ooh, you know, da, 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 they, they got to spank them. They got some bad marriage. And, and that's the kind of thing that I need for white women who are listening to understand. You don't have to actually get it. You're never going to get it. Cause you don't live in my skin, but don't question my experience. This is not something that we're making up because we want attention. Like this is actually how it is. The double standard is so real. I brought it up a little bit at the, even at the end of our last conversation, knowing the different reaction I get when I come into a situation where I'm the only black mom and I'm surrounded by all these other white moms and feeling that pressure that I have to make sure, oh, my kids, their hair is done. They have their jackets there that I'm on time. And then being also aware and this, this goes to when I had doctor's appointments, particularly with my last child, who was the only child born in Georgia because we're from California. I was treated very differently when my white husband was in the room than when I was by myself. And I was like, um, first of all, dear white doctor who I was assigned, who I did not choose. I know my body. This is my third go around. You're not going to sit here and and try to weight shame me because of the pounds that I'm gaining growing humans. And you're not going to change your tune the next time that I'm in your office about to fire you because my husband's sitting there next to me. And, and so just to know that when, when, when we are moving through the, the world as black mothers, that the world always tries to hang this idea of you are invalid. You are not dignified. If you are good, you're the exception, not the rule. If you are, if, if your kids got in trouble, oh, of course they did. You know, and, and that's something that we, it's, it's such a, mm, wouldn't it be nice to not even have to consider those things, but that's not the reality. That's not the reality. So I don't want any of us to feel like everything is bound up and what has been placed on us. But we also have to be aware that this is the reality, you know, uh, young raising young black girls. Oh, they're, they're viewed as promiscuous. So young. They don't get to just be little girls. It's so painful. I remember having that conversation when I hugged a, a, a longtime family friend's dad and my parents were like, you, you know, you can't, you can't do that. And I, I was a child and now I know it's because, oh, they, the way that, that this, the dad was white was like, oh, that, that gives off a wrong message. So there's just so much that, you know, I, I don't want it to ever be lost on those who are taking the time to listen, that this is our experience. And it's an experience that if you're a white woman, you know, not of. So I, I would like Naya, to- are you going to say something before you go? Cause Naya, Naya has to leave in, in just a minute. So please. Okay. Um, <laughs> then Shay, please. Uh, really quick. I want to just make sure that I unequivocally affirm that whoever is listening, you are good. Full stop. You are good. It is not dependent on any mistakes you have or haven't made. You're good because that's how you were made. None of us are perfect in our actions, but in our being, we are good. You are good. 
And that is what dignity affirms. That definition of dignity can be whittled down to you are good. Just as we're talking about this and giving these examples, um, even Linda Taylor, who I don't want to say even, and Linda Taylor, who was given this unfair moniker, who was carrying these other things, who were making decisions that, you know, Linda Taylor was good. And so are you. I don't even know how to fully just absorb everything that has been said to this moment and specifically what Naya just was speaking to. It's just, it reminds me of, of a story, honestly, when you talk about that, I, I think this is the thread that I'm hearing in everybody, what everybody's sharing. And I bear with me because it's going to be a little sports oriented, but you know, in sports, we understand that even those of us who are not like spiritually aware and we're like, Ooh, hokey, hokey, how, what's the energy of it? We understand that when you do what you do in front of people who believe in you, you do better. We understand that. And it's called the home team advantage. We understand it so much so that if you are not the home team, the welcoming, the traveling team, we try to level the playing ground, but they get to go first. We, we something, they get the left side of the field, whatever we think is going to position them a little bit stronger in that um, connection, right? We want to give them that advantage. So what I am hearing through these stories is the black woman, she's always been the traveling damn team. She has never been on the home team. She's never been it. So what she had to do was figure out how to be great when nobody was praising her in the stands. That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing, I th- and then that goes to your dignity. And how did she do that? How would she figure out how to be great and execute greatness when nobody was in the stands shouting for her? She had to lean into some inherent known dignity she possessed that you may not see me, You may not value me, but I am something good. That's the only way. So that is what I see in the connection of what you ladies are talking about. Yeah, Shay, because I raised my hand and then I lowered it because I'm old and I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. Not even lying. (laughs) I was so, like, I was like, oh, I'm going to say it. And then y'all are just spitting things that I'm trying to absorb. And then I just forgot. But then you reminded me what I was going to say when Patty was talking about how we have with our friends, our white friends will, well, friends, acquaintances will try to discredit our experience. And when people say that there's no such thing as systemic racism, my answer to that always is then what do you believe about black people? Because if there's no such thing as systemic racism and there's no such thing as bias and we're making up these stories, then we're not good people is what you're saying. That we're not brilliant. And white people must be flipping magical. Yeah. Because and they white people be are magical because they're smarter, seen. wealthier, harder working. And if you're saying that, then you are having a very, very racist thought about me and my life. So it has to be one or the other. So when Mike Pence gets on TV with all the world watching and the world watches, the world watches our debates and our voting, right? 
especially in 2020, they were watching. And he says there is no such thing as systemic racism. That fly landed on his head like, what? Say what now? I've been traveling around and I can tell you different. That's when I you wish know? I had a magic wand. To <laughs> That's when I wish I had a magic wand to go like, okay, you're black. You're black yeah. for a month. You're black for yeah. a year. And so recently I posted, Shay, I posted that um, from, I forget the name. I think it's Black Detour is the name of the, the feed. But I reposted um, something that they had with the woman who did, she did the study in her class where she told kids that the kids with the blue eyes were better than the kids with the brown eyes back in the day. Well, she was speaking at a church and she asked, she asked them a, a random question about racism. And of course, they're in church, they're all going to be like, yes, racism is terrible and blah, 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 blah. And then she said, how many of you, if you don't believe that there's racism, how many of you are okay being um, Jane Elliott? How many of you are okay? would trade like your life with a black person. And that room was like, didn't no hands go up. No, not a single hand. Cause it's just like, well, then why don't you live in a black neighborhood? Why don't you have a black doctor? Well, and right? also may I just ask the question, are we literally saying that until President Obama, the only people who could ever lead this country were white men. Is that what we're saying? Like they're the only people qualified. They're the only people skilled, smart enough. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So when a company has only had white male CEOs, then what you're telling me is the only people who know how to do this job are white men. Get Come on, get out of here. I do not have time. I do not have time for that. Um, Andrea, you are like Sister Silent. <laughs> you have some thoughts and I, I want you know I think that you being the white ear in the room you could be like the fly like Andrea Andrea is the fly landing on the on the heads of all these, like, all these people gathering. All these people. <laughs> like I am you I see you a few eggs while I'm here on his head. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, I, though, I, I want to just listen and learn and have my voice a little more silent. And I would love, if I can, if Quantrilla, you haven't spoken lately, and I would just love to hear from you because of the field that you're in with Black mothers and wanting, I mean, you bring dignity to these Black mothers or women that want to be Black mothers. So, Montrella, not to put the spotlight on you, but I know, oh, I know you okay, it's okay. Yes, actually, I was going to jump in and say that, you know, this whole conversation uh, really boils down to uh, what Naya was saying about agency and not just agency as, you know, how we show up, but agency in our bodies. When we are becoming mothers, it is a sacred and a holy thing. And I have witnessed personally and in my studies how dignity is stripped from black women in their motherhood and becoming mothers and how their bodies are treated and how they are cared or lack of care. They receive lack of care in these hospital rooms by, by doctors who do not care about their bodies. And one thing I have always disliked is the fact that 
I was taught to be in tune with my body and going into a, a, a professional office, right. With someone who has taken an oath to care for and heal my body. When I come in with a concern, because I have been taught to care for my body and listen to my body, that that is ignored or that that is uh, dismissed or brushed off as, Oh, I'm being dramatic or, Oh, I'm just, uh, they have a word for it, psychosomatic that I'm just, I just can't control my emotions or I'm just making these things up. And when a mother comes in to deliver a baby, she is at her most vulnerable emotionally, physically. She is literally hanging on between life and death. And this is the moment that you want to choose to violate her body. This is the moment that you want to strip her of her dignity. It completely just takes me to another level. And the disdain I have seen for black bodies when they are bringing life into the world is maddening. And the fact remains that this is a preventable situation almost 100% of the time. Black mamas should not be dying. Black babies should not be dying. And it is the lack of care and consideration for dignity for Black mamas and babies in these birthing spaces that are literally stealing their lives from them. Dr. Contrilla, I have a question mm-hmm. for you when you're done. Yes. yes, go ahead. No, go ahead. Now, I j- I'm sorry, Andrea, to just hijack this, but when she's talking, <laughs> it, it seems to me that Black women, even those who are mothers, we, from society's eyes, we stand in this peculiar place. Though we are women, it's like our womanhood is not acknowledged. I don't know. It's like we I don't know if I'm saying it, how it was formulating in my mind, but it seems like we are in this peculiar place, like where we're neither male nor female. You're not male, um, but femininity is seems to be judged or the, the the barometer of femininity. It seems to be white womenhood. So we're not that. So we are caught. It feels to me, and I would love to hear your thoughts. It seems like we're caught in this place of not woman, not man, black, even when we're bringing forth life. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? I agree. I agree. When you show up, you show up as black regardless. Mm-hmm. And in these spaces where you are supposed to be protected, treated equally, you show up as a black person. And again, when you're coming into these spaces and you're vulnerable and you're seeking help and medical assistance, the fact still remains that you are black and it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter, you know, for the assumption that when you come into the hospital prepared to deliver, the assumption is that you are either a single mom that you're on welfare, that you don't have a support system. A lot of times it's even that you're drug seeking. Like it doesn't, it does not matter. The fact is when you walk through those doors, you are seen as black first. Then secondary to that is maybe you're here to have a baby. Then secondary to that is, you know, maybe she has a support system. Maybe a husband shows up. 
all of those things are superseded by the fact that you show up as black in that space and you are treated as such. And this is why, you know, for me, it is so important to have black practitioners and, and people who look like you in those spaces to mitigate some, uh, and I do mean some, because it does not mitigate fully uh, those effects, but to mitigate some of that effect of stripping away black women's dignity in the birthing room. Um, It is literally a life and death issue to have someone there that understands your experience that may have even had the same experience with you in the birthing room. Um, it, it is just, it's so important. Um, I think of, you know, my own experience in having someone literally not hear me say, I can feel you touching me. You know, the whole story is ridiculous, but the fact that I'm telling you, I can feel you touching me and you constantly ignore my voice and you cut me open and I feel it. It is like, how, how does that happen in a world where you have a whole person that is trained in anesthetic procedures and you have a person that is still not hearing you? I don't know if any anyone listening has ever had this experience of being cut open, but that and the other things that are ignored, other pains, other concerns, other other experiences that are ignored that literally makes you die inside a little bit. It does. It takes away what Naya was saying, that inherent goodness, that inherent value and worth. And you don't believe that you're worth being listened to because you don't want to be stereotyped as that person or that patient or the angry black woman. Y'all, I wanted to tear that whole labor and delivery wing up, but I just was so afraid to sour the experience for any other woman that would come behind me. And I'm telling you, that is a real psychological issue that we also carry in our bodies because, you know, like you said in the beginning, Shay, we stand not here just for ourselves, but for the thousands that come with us. That is a good thing. And that also has negative connotations too. So when I advocate and educate on this topic, it is not because I want to scare or, um, or, or even further remove dignity from black mamas in this space. But I need people to understand the necessity that we cannot allow this to happen to our mamas any longer or our babies any longer. There has to be a way to say this is it and no further. And that to me is what will change the tide. That will change the tide. And everything we've been talking about today about dignity and value and worth, when we believe that these women coming into these labor and delivery spaces are valuable, are worthy. Look, are feminine, right? We literally have proof of their femininity, but they're still treated like chattel. They're still treated as if they were somewhere out in a bar. That to me blows my mind. Until we can put a pin there and change it and stick it and say it's done, I don't know how we'll ever turn the tides. Wow, Dr. Contrilla, that is... A lot and amazing. I just thank you. 
thank you for sharing all of that. I, I really want to thank you, Quantrilla, because I keep calling you Quanti because of your, your Instagram tag, but Quantrilla, I'm super emotional. It's because, um, you know, um, recently um, I, I share with Shay and I've shared with Andrea, I've, I've had a lot of health issues that I've recently realized go back to my labor. My child is 20. Um, but, um, you know, we almost died when I, when I, both my child, both Max and I almost died because a doctor didn't listen. And I had an incredibly painful experience that ended in an emergency C-section a full 24 hours after the fact when I told my doctor before I even went into labor that no one in my family, none of the women in my family had had natural births and that I wanted to be prepared to have a C-section. But because we place such a high value on vaginal birth, you know, like as if it's some sort of better way, like, you know, like as if there's some, you're, you're more of a mother if you have vaginal birth, you're more of a mother if you breastfeed sort of thing. And so when you can't do those things, you're shamed. And so I was, she prepared me to have like a birth plan that only had labor in it and wouldn't put in that plan my history. And when I arrived and, you know, it was time for Max to be born, the nurse said, the doctor said, I think there, there's a shoulder, that Max's shoulder was blocking the passage. And the nurse reached in and said, that's not a shoulder, that's a cyst. And my doctor's like, no, it's the shoulder. Turned out it was a massive cyst. It was, I had several. And so in the end, I did have to have an emergency C-section, but those cysts were never removed. I was, she told me that they would go away on their own, that it was probably because of my estrogen or whatever. And as I had shared with Shay, you know, and Andrea knows this, my health for the past 10 years has just deteriorated. And it's been incredibly painful to watch myself disappear in a million ways, you know, and to watch my child see me disappear, you know, because I've gone to, I can't tell you how many doctors, and it's always something new. It's always like, well, it's this, you're, you're, first it was I wasn't eating enough, then it was, oh, you must be eating too much, and then it was, you're, you're working out too much, and it was, there were just all these different reasons, but the reason was, now that's gotten to this point where uh, there are days that I walk like I'm 90 years old, and so it's been really taxing, but anyway, all that to say, I had my mother-in-law in the room with me. I had my husband in the room with me. And I am definitely convinced that if my mother-in-law and husband would not have been in that room with me, I would not be here today. Because it was my mother-in-law who worked in medical records, who kept telling them, who was taking notes. <laughs> she was literally singing hymns, <laughs> not kidding. <laughs> and she was singing hymns and <laughs> taking notes. And they saw this black woman taking notes and she came dressed in a suit with a briefcase because she knew that she wanted them to know that she was somebody and that she wasn't just taking notes or doing a crossword. And then she had me file a report with HIPAA, I think it is, or whatever. But I remember 
remember the, the one black nurse coming in the day that I left and weeping. And I was too happy with my baby to know what, I was like, what are you crying for? It's all fine. But she was weeping because of the experience. And I think, Kwani, you putting words, I, I know there are women out there who feel like you failed some way in your birth or you failed or God forbid that you lost your baby because that could be very real. Many of us have. And I just want to say, as Naya said, you're good. And that is not your fault. That is not your fault. And so I just thank you for putting words to so many things that I've just been carrying lately. Don't worry, y'all. Shay has been on it. I have a doctor's appointment Wednesday because I had I'd literally given up. I was just like, whatever this is, I, I guess I'm just going to die early like every other black woman who dies early. Shay shook her head now. But Shay was like, no, we're not having that. <laughs> but it is. It's really hard. And the other thing that's really hard that you have to understand, too, that I'm shocked by is that it's not just once you get in the room, you got you to gotta hope that your insurance covers it. And I I gotta tell you, we've had a, we work for ourselves, my husband and I, and when you were saying that it doesn't matter how much money you have, we're, we're doing all right. <laughs> like my husband and I are doing just fine. And I still, and we pay a fortune for insurance and there are still doctors who will not touch me because my insurance is not covered by a company. And so I am here to tell you that when you are saying we're not human or we're not women, we're not men, I think we walk in those rooms and what I feel like is a burden. That's what I feel like when I walk into those rooms and the doctor sees me. I feel like a burden. I feel like something that they feel like, you know, like, ugh here you are again you know like that's how I feel even though I've never met you before <laughs> you know like this is my first time and my first appointment and I can tell I can sense you wanting me to get out of this room as quickly as possible so you can move on and not have to touch my body see my body it's a for real feeling where you just know and there have been so many times that I felt that with a doctor and I walk out and then a white woman walks in and it's like they must have had lunch yesterday together. Like it's a whole different feeling. So thank you, Quantrilla. Yeah. Marcy, I wish we could all give you a hug. I know this is really, it's really emotional. I know you've been carrying so much and I feel like we have to share these stories, okay. what's happening to us because so often we're the only ones in the room. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I didn't start sharing my story until I read Tressie McMillan Cotton's story in her book, Thick, mm -hmm. about how she lost her baby. She kept telling them something was wrong and they literally had her sitting with her dead baby out in the open, not even in a private room. Oh and God. this is a woman who has a MacArthur, <laughs> um, who has a MacArthur Genius Award, a multi-degreed professor, a writer, a speaker. She works for the New York Times, for goodness sake. And if she, if they can't see dignity in her, then how are they going to see dignity in someone like my sister who works at a factory? No degree. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? 
So, yeah, I think we do. We have to share what's happening to black women in these rooms because I'm with you, Contrilla. It has to stop. Marcy, I also want to say thank you for sharing your story. And uh, Quantrilla, thank you for, for naming that. And it needs to change. And it's from every part of the process from, oh, the stick that I peed on says I'm pregnant through I'm coming in for aftercare and, and so on and so forth, because it's really, it's a problem that each of us have a story. They, they're different, but each of us has a story and we, we deserve more and our children deserve more. So there's a lot more that I could say about that, but you all have already said so much. And I, I would like to end with, with reading a, a portion from Alice Walker's book and essay in search of our mother's garden, because through the the ways that we've honored each other in this conversation and, and shared some giggles and through the really hard things that we've talked about. I don't want any of us to ever forget this. It reads our mothers and grandmothers, some of them moving to music, not yet written. And they waited, they waited for a day when the unknown thing that was in them would be made known but guessed somehow in their darkness that on the day of their revelation, they would be long dead. But this is not the end of the story. For all the young women, our mothers and grandmothers, ourselves, have not perished in the wilderness. And if we ask ourselves why and search for and find the answer, we will know beyond all efforts to erase it from our minds just exactly who and of what we Black American women are. We will know who we are. As we wrap up this series, I'm once again asking you to consider giving a small monetary amount to the women who have let us learn and listen to them this month. Donations can be made via Venmo to the address Her Story Speaks. Any amount is appreciated and all of the money will be given to the phenomenal Black women who are part of this series. Mm-hmm.